This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is the Science Podcast for October 13th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up on the show this week, making the Kuiper belt a little bit bigger. This is a circular field of icy bodies that surrounds our solar system's edge. And it might just be bigger than we thought. Staff writer Paul Vusen joins me to discuss some observations made out past Neptune. Next up on the show, the impact of wildfire smoke on the indoors. Producer Kevin McLean talks with chemist Delphine Farmer about her science advances paper on where particulates and volatile organic compounds, also known as VOCs, end up when they sneak inside during a wildfire event. And in a sponsored segment, Associate Editor of Custom Publishing, Jackie Oberst, sits down with Jens Nielsen, Chief Executive Officer at the Bioinnovation Institute, to dispel myths about synthetic biology and how to balance its risks and benefits. I had no idea that our solar system was undersized before today, but now, now I'm kind of feeling this little claustrophobic feeling. <laughs> Around the outer orbit of Neptune, we have something called a circumstellar disk called the Kuiper Belt. This is a big field of icy bodies, you know, past the last official planet. And it's much larger than the ring of planets. And we also have something called the asteroid belt that cuts between our inner rocky planets and outer planets. This is just another kind of a field of objects circling the sun. But the Kuiper Belt is way out past Neptune. And it's small. It's smaller than the circumstellar disk surrounding other systems. And we don't know why. But it's a pretty recent finding. And there's a chance we might have just missed how big it really is. So Paul Vusen is here to discuss our various belts, their sizes, and how they came to be. Hi, Paul. Welcome back. Hi. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm obviously very excited to talk about all our belts. The first observation of the objects in the Kuiper belt didn't happen actually until the end of the 80s and the early 90s, but it was predicted before that so there would be these objects out there. Why did it take so long for us to see something that's basically part of the solar system or like at its border? Technically, uh, 
Pluto, <laughs> you know, is also part of the Kuiper belt okay. and that, you know, was spotted. <laughs> so this is why Pluto is no longer a planet. They realized that there's a lot of other stuff out there that is Pluto-sized or, I mean, there's not a lot out in the Kuiper belt that, Kuiper belt, Kuiper belt, whichever you want to say it, <laughs> that is that size. But Pluto is a part of it. Right. But, you know, most of these objects are very faint seen from uh, Earth. And so it's just it's hard to see. And people couldn't see them until the 90s when people began to realize that there are all sorts of these icy bodies out there, Kuiper belt objects or KBOs, as people call them. Essentially, they're planetary building blocks from the earliest stages of the solar system that never got to form into a planet. Maybe at one point, Pluto was on the way to becoming a planet, and then it just like got cut off by Neptune or some gyrations of planets. But you have all these little icy asteroid type bodies circling slowly out there. And how far out are we talking? The kind of peak density of the Kuiper belt is about 45 astronomical units. <laughs> so one astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the sun. That's very self-referential. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so well, that can give you kind of a, an approximate sense. This is past Neptune is another good way of thinking about it. Okay. And that's where that identity is, but then it drops off. We have an end to the belt, or so we thought. All the way from the 80s to the 2010s, astronomers were cataloging what else besides Pluto was in the Kuiper belt. It turned out to be what smaller than predicted or than expected. You can see these in other solar systems, and it just kind of goes out and out and continues onward. And then you look at our own, and it kind of drops off this clip. People sometimes even call it the Kuiper cliff of around 50 AU, where these regularly orbiting small bodies just kind of disappear. People have had different ideas for why, like passing star stripped off material from our solar system, like early in its infancy. And that's why this happened. But it's always been a little strange. And so now you're here with new evidence that perhaps it's bigger or double. And this comes from the New Horizons spacecraft. Can you tell us a little bit about the mission before we get into the Kuiper Belt details? Yeah, so... New Horizons is a NASA mission that's been going for, uh, it launched nearly two decades ago. It flew past Pluto in 2015. Oh, we got those nice pictures. Yeah. And gave us those beautiful images of Pluto and then flew past a KBO, a Kuiper Belt object called Erikoff in 2019, which was arguably even a bigger scientific result seeing one of these kind of classic KBOs close up. And but still kind of, hurtling out there into space, and it's now past the kind of edge of the main Kuiper belt. The team that has been looking for a new flyby target this whole time using ground-based telescopes to try and find something that it can get to on its limited fuel reserves. So as it's continued onward, those hopes had been diminishing a bit. They fell off the cliff, right? <laughs> yes. But then we've seen some of these results that are intriguing. Yeah. So what exactly has been spotted that maybe might make a tempting target for New Horizons to visit? There are two aspects to this. First to say this is all preliminary, not peer-reviewed. It's a little kind of strange. So New Horizons, it's, if you looked at it from Earth, it's kind of going right into the middle of the Milky Way. You know, it's not where you want to look for stuff because there's a lot of noise, but that's where they have to look because they're looking for objects in its path. 
So using the Subaru telescope in Hawaii, the astronomers working with the New Horizons team over the past few years have spied 12 or so objects that are far past the typical boundary of the Kuiper belt, seeing things out there, you've seen even a dozen, it's, you know, that should be so faint that you would apply a lot more than <laughs> a dozen are there right? compared to stuff you see closer up. So these are intriguing results they haven't been able to disprove. And at the same time, on New Horizons itself, there's an instrument called a dust counter. It's a very kind of simple, elegant instrument. It's been running all through the solar system. And, you know, dust is this great index of there's planetary stuff around colliding into each other. And you expect after, given what we can currently see, once you went past the main Kuiper belt, that the dust would drop off precipitously, but it hasn't really been doing that. And so that's this other indicator that there's maybe more stuff out there than we once thought. Is there a gap? Are we seeing a second ring? You know, how far out are these objects and what do they say about the shape of this disk? It's very uncertain right now, but, you know, they're between kind of 60, 80 AU or so. Oh, wow. But between that kind of 50 and 60 range, there seems like a gap, but it's not clear yet. It could be this just the Kuiper belt extends much farther out or that there's a gap in the Kuiper belt for some reason that then extends farther out. You know, I don't know if you would call this, the headline writers call it a second Kuiper belt. <laughs> <laughs> or there could just be a groove in the Kuiper belt. Yeah. That leaves another mystery. So maybe the Kuiper belt doesn't end sooner than would be predicted, but it has like a weird groove in it. That could also be the, the new mystery. And then what happened to create that? A larger body that would be kind of carving out space in that would likely have seen this is not, you know, some kind of planet nine hypothetical distance far away, which that's kind of much farther. That's much farther. Yeah. That's really far away, right? Yeah. But there are, we've seen kind of these types of gaps in protoplanetary disks and other solar systems that can be explained by formation of you know, over pressure waves and the gaseous disk early on and things like that. Just say resonance and I'll totally believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so What's next then? Is this going to change the target for New Horizons? Is it going to change what the mission plan is? It's possible. So New Horizons was just approved to operate relatively as is until later in the decade, which was up in the air until very recently, like last week or maybe two weeks ago, depending on when we recorded this. <laughs> but now we'll be able to continue looking for flyby targets. The odds of one of these actually being able to be closely targeted in the same way, you know, are very small, but given how far out these are with the kind of limited fuel reserves are, you get more bang for your buck if you make that altered course earlier on. So there, there is a possible chance. First, they need to really be sure these are real <laughs> yeah. before anything else. That will be probably still take another couple of years for everyone to at least come to agreement on that, I imagine. For sure. I mean, we're going to see these papers come out, they're going to be peer reviewed, and then people are going to critique, and then they're going to be people trying to make collaborating observations like with other devices. Mm -hmm. All right, Paul, what did I miss from your story? I still feel like, I mean, I guess they're small and dark, right? They're not very shiny. That's why we can't see mm -hmm. them, even though they're technically in our solar system. It's just surprising. Yeah. I mean, it is very strange to think that we can see the boundaries of other solar systems in some ways better than our own. But yeah, exactly. That's exactly the point. Yeah. 
just talked about how it's strange it is not to be able to see the boundaries of our own solar system. Definitely. And there's going to be a almost kind of a physical limit of this, but you know, some of the folks involved in this are also doing work with JWST to kind of look a bit deeper in our own solar system. So that could have more results. You're going to have bigger, fancier telescopes coming up on in the ground and mm-hmm. also kind of the, uh, you know, this is not my tr- traditional field. Now I'm blanking on the Vera Rubin telescope, where it's going to be a really kind of cataloging huge number of hyperbelt objects, not necessarily catching all, all the faint, really distant ones, but just really dramatically increasing our knowledge of the outer edges of the solar system. Very cool. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Yeah, thank you. Paul Fusen is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with producer Kevin McLean and researcher Delphine Farmer. They talk about how to clean your house and protect yourself from VOCs after a wildfire event. One hint, you cannot mop too much. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Around the world, we're seeing wildfires increasing in severity and frequency, Earlier this summer, you may have seen photos of the New York City skyline turned orange from fires up in Canada. I live in Northern California, and I know I tend to think about wildfires pretty frequently, especially this time of year. And even if you're a safe distance from the fires themselves, there's the smoke. And at least for me, the strategy tends to just be stay inside and shut windows, maybe upgrade an air filter. But in a recent paper in Science Advances, Delphine Farmer and her colleagues looked at the effects of wildfire smoke indoors. They looked at how smoke collects and actually re-emits pollutants once it gets inside, and what kinds of strategies work best to minimize indoor air pollution. Delphine, welcome to the Science Podcast. Thank you for having me. Great. So first off, I want to talk about what motivated this research. Why did you decide to focus on wildfire smoke indoors? I've spent a lot of my career thinking about outdoor air pollution and wildfire smoke as it comes straight out of fires. I was part of this big project where we actually flew in an NSF aircraft into wildfire plumes in the western United States, including over Northern California in 2018. And so I realize just how much air pollution is coming out of those fires and that the chemistry is really complex. And at the same time, I was just beginning to dive into the indoor world where we spend 90% of our time indoors. And that just got me curious about what happens when some of that smoke gets inside and, and what is its effect. So that was really the start of this study. 
Great. So you mentioned several kinds of pollutants from wildfires, like particulate matter and carbon monoxide and ozone. But then you also focus a lot on volatile organic compounds or VOCs. Can you talk a little bit about what these VOCs are and why they're an important pollutant to consider? Yeah. So VOCs are anything that really easily gets into the gas phase as opposed to just sitting on one of those particles. And we inhale air and with that, we inhale VOCs. And so most of the VOCs that we think about are things that are pretty benign and they don't, they're not dangerous. So you cut open a lemon and you'll smell a molecule called limonene. It's not going to hurt you. But with smoke, the VOCs are a lot more toxic. And while smoke comes with some friendly VOCs like limonene, it also comes with some pretty toxic molecules like benzene, a variety of associated organic aromatic compounds that look similar. So those VOCs, they have known health consequences. And so we were interested in terms of what happens to those VOCs and what is our exposure to them indoors. I really want to talk about just how you did this research. And I'm going to have you describe this facility, this experimental house where you did the, the research. What? Tell me about this place. The National Institute for Standards and Technology. So NIST is a government lab in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and they have an entire house. It's a two-story house with a basement and an attic on their research campus. And it's a beautiful standard sort of home you might find in American suburbia. And it was really built to investigate how we can be more energy efficient with homes. That was fantastic for us because it means that this research group at NIST has already figured out all of the airflow in the home. They understand exactly how much air gets in from outside. They understand the temperature. They understand the environment inside. And they can control all of those conditions. So were they, they were just happy for you to like pump a bunch of smoke into this house or what? I think they didn't quite know what they were getting into in the first <laughs> place. At first, we talked about adding some cooking emissions. And then I pointed out that, you know, an extreme form of cooking is when you burn things. And then we talked about maybe we would add a small amount. And we ended up, you know, calling the fire department to let them know. And everyone was honestly just excited and curious. So you just, you sort of eased them into the idea of all of this. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now in the paper, you talk about the sort of different timelines and everything once smoke infiltrates and what can help. And there's adsorption and desorption, which I don't necessarily know the exact difference between those, but there's a lot going on. Can you kind of just walk through the process of what happens when smoke enters the indoor environment? Yes. So if you have one of those wildfire smoke events like you were talking about and you opened a door to walk into your house, or even if you have the door closed, there are little leaks in around that door that allow smoke to come in. And smoke has both particles, so particulate matter, so solids or liquids suspended in the air, and you can often see those. But it also comes with these volatile organic compounds that are in the gas phase, and you can't see those. Those are invisible. So when that smoke first enters into your house, those particles, you're going to breathe them in. And that's probably why you're thinking about changing your filters and running air purifiers. But then they're actually quite quickly going to deposit onto surfaces in your house. So they go away pretty quickly. Those volatile organic compounds are a little bit different. 
when they come into your house, you're going to breathe them in. They don't tend to get taken up by filters very effectively. So your air filter and your air purifier aren't going to do a lot for them, but they don't settle on surfaces as fast as the particles. So the volatile organic compounds were the ones that we were curious about how long they stay in a house. And that's where those adsorption and desorption processes came into play. Yeah. What is, what is adsorption? What is desorption actually? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So when that volatile organic compound comes into your house, it's going to meet some surfaces. So if you look around your room, you have walls, you have tables, you have a floor, you have a ceiling. So those gases are just going to diffuse around the room and they're going to approach those surfaces. And when a gas, uh, a volatile organic compound meets an indoor surface, there's a variety of things that are going to happen, but one of those is adsorption. So that volatile organic compound can adsorb onto the surface. So that means it just attaches, it adheres. So it's a weak molecular bond between the surface and that gas. And so you can just think of it as it, it just starts to stick. So that's the adsorption. But then what happens is your air cleans out in your house. The wildfire smoke event ends, that air moves out over the Pacific Ocean, or it rains and the air clears out. So now the concentrations in your house are beginning to decrease. As soon as they hit a low enough concentration, then all of those little VOCs that had stuck onto the surfaces of your house they're going to release and those bonds are slowly going to break and the molecules will desorb and leave that surface and go back into the air. So that's adsorption and desorption. And what we found was that you have so many VOCs in smoke that when they come into your house, even if it's a light smoke event, then those VOCs are going to adsorb. They're going to adhere to your surface initially. So they form this reservoir. So a pool that you cannot see, some of it buries into the drywall of your homes, is going to stick there. And the challenge is that when that smoke event goes, it's not like all of those VOCs desorb and leave your house. Unfortunately, the desorption process is very slow. And so depending on exactly what that VOC was, was it benzene or was it a really large, strange organic molecule coming out of that wildfire? That VOC will then slowly desorb over the timescales of at least hours, but days, weeks, months even. And so you'll slowly have this constant source in your house of that smoke VOC. So now that the wildfire smoke event has cleared, you're just going to start unfortunately, breathing in the remnants of the smoke that had just gotten stuck on all your walls as it slowly desorbs over time. Oh, interesting. So the surfaces in like when the smoke infiltrates are initially taking things out of the air, essentially, but then over time, they're releasing back. And then it's after the event has cleared is when when all of the the stuff that has adsorbed, you can start breathing in. Exactly. And it's interesting because we initially were really excited. We're like, oh, these all these surfaces are taking up all of these VOCs. This is fantastic. You know, the house air is all going to clean up. And then we're like, wait a minute, these, these levels are not ever actually going all the way back down. And that's when we realized that 
while you had initially removed all of that smoke, those VOCs were now just going to slowly bleed off. Are there certain surfaces that are more like will collect more of these VOCs than others? Should we, you know, be avoiding shag carpet or something like that? (laughs) Well, I think one should always avoid shag carpet, but (laughs) we're not sure. That's another study for another day. We were just looking at this as the entire house perspective. So we don't know how different materials respond to that smoke yet. Okay. All right. So I know you were looking at different strategies to clear these VOCs once smoke has infiltrated. You looked at ventilation and air filters and also cleaning surfaces directly. What did you find in terms of, of what cleared everything best? Unfortunately, we found that surface cleaning actually cleared the air the best. We were hoping that air filters and air purifiers would do a really good job. And, and indeed, they can help reduce some of those smoke VOC levels during an event. But they only work for as long as you turn them on. And they're actually not that effective when it comes to those volatile organic compounds. Instead, sweeping, dusting, and mopping all your floors actually removes all of those VOCs that had adsorbed onto those floor surfaces. And so now you've actually removed the contaminants from your home and those surfaces will not then re-emit and desorb those smoke VOCs. So surface cleaning is an excellent way to improve the indoor air in your home. The problem with it is that you can only clean so many spaces in your house. We cleaned all the floors, we cleaned all the tabletops and all the counters, but we didn't try vacuuming the ceiling. (laughs) And that's just for obvious logistical reasons. So we permanently reduced the exposure of anyone in the house to those smoke VOCs, but we couldn't eliminate the effect of smoke. Every time we added smoke, even if we would have cleaned it, that level, that background level would still slowly creep up because we couldn't get to the walls and the ceilings. I know you're based in Colorado and you must get a lot of wildfire smoke there at times. So what what do you do? Has any of this work kind of changed any of your habits? I'm also sort of asking selfishly, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So when I first started doing indoor air work and I learned just how many particles come out of just toasting a piece of bread, that was my (laughs) first giant change in habits in my house. And I started using the vent hood over my stove a lot more. Yeah. I feel like the indoor air pollution surrounding gas stoves was like having a real moment. Is that something that you've spent time studying or thinking about? The first big indoor air study that I did was called Home Chem. And as the name might suggest, we looked at how everyday activities impacted the air you breathe in a house. And again, we worked in a real home. We looked at gas stoves and those emissions. And what we found was that there certainly are emissions, but they are very small relative to the large emissions of particulate matter and VOCs that come out when you cook. Oh, wow. So just cooking really releases a lot more. I didn't realize that. Uh, Okay, sorry. Back to wildfires. Any changes there? In terms of this research, It has definitely made me clean my house a little bit more, which is not my favorite thing to do. But when we have had a wildfire smoke event, we had that Canadian wildfire smoke came down into Colorado. And after that event cleared, I did actually 
sweep and mop my floors. And, you know, it's really hard because you can't see those VOCs. But the science tells me that this is a way to reduce my exposure to what I know are air toxics. So that is a change that I'm going to make in my life. Oh, man, I need to... uh update my uh, shameful frequency of cleaning my house, I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> so what's next with this this work? I know that there were a lot of different measurements that were being taken. I know it's a big collaborative project, but what's next for this kind of research? So let's see, I can answer that in a few different ways. This project that we did at NIST was not just to add wildfire smoke. We also added ozone, which is a key ingredient of urban smog. And so one of the next things I want to do is look into what happens when that ozone gets into the house. And that ozone is, is a bit different from wildfire smoke. It's actually very reactive. So we're seeing it react with all the surfaces in a house. So I think the next thing I want to look into is what happens when outdoor smog and urban air pollution gets into a home. So that's one answer. In terms of indoor projects and case studies we want to make next, those smoke VOCs adsorb onto the surface. But what we don't know is how far they bury into the surface. Do they move deep into your drywall? And does that mean that they're released over years? Or do they stay on the surfaces and they only get released for the next few months? And so one of our next studies that we'll be starting next year is thinking about where molecules go specifically in different building materials in a real world environment, and then seeing how they then move and are, what timescales they're re-released into the air. That sounds really fascinating, a little bit terrifying maybe, <laughs> but it sounds like a, a really interesting project. So thank you so much, Delphine. It was great to have you on. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for hosting. Delphine Farmer is a professor of chemistry at Colorado State University. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcasts. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by the Bioinnovation Institute. Custom Publishing Associate Editor Jackie Oberst chats with Jens Nielsen about how synthetic biology is poised to change the next couple of decades, from the age of the computer to the age of DNA. The views of the custom segments are those of the guests and do not reflect policies of science or AAAS. Hello to our podcast listeners, and welcome to this custom-sponsored interview from the Science AAAS Custom Publishing Office and brought to you by the Bioinnovation Institute, or BII, an international life science incubator in Copenhagen, Denmark. My name is Jackie Oberst, and I'm assistant editor for custom publishing at Science. Advances in our understanding of biology, in particular how living cells function, have enabled us to recruit different types of cells for production of new medicines, new materials, new food ingredients, and even biofuels. This field is referred to as synthetic biology, a marriage of sorts between engineering and biology. This union promises a lot of advances to our everyday living. Helping this type of research thrive is the Bioinnovation Institute, or BII. Supported by the Novo Nordisk Foundation, BII is an international nonprofit and incubator for life science startups that benefit society and the environment and have launched a number of synthetic biology companies. Today, we're speaking with Jens Nielsen, CEO of BII, on all things synthetic biology, what it is, how it is being used, and where it can be applied in the future. Good morning, Dr. Nielsen. It's nice to speak with you. Good morning. If you can acclimate the viewers, what is synthetic biology? 
So synthetic biology has an origin actually from electrical engineering that you could take a certain input and get another output and use that to address some basic questions in biology that could we begin to take components that actually come from different places and create something from bottom up, uh, but still that work in a natural system, so to speak. So you're talking about an artificial cell? Well, that is to its extreme. Uh, that still has not been achieved because there's still too many unknowns in a whole cell. Uh, but at least just some components that we put together that will not exist naturally. Of course, it was obvious to think if this could find some applications. And some of these applications could be to say, could we now use this to also engineer cells to begin to produce products that are valuable to us? Could you give us some examples? For many years, there was quite a lot of interest into could we begin to produce some of these products that we today get from the oil industry and here might begin to make monomers that are being used to make plastic and other materials. And hereby we could have a more sustainable production of these chemicals. There's also been several companies that have started to do this. Very few have succeeded because it's very, very hard to compete on cost with an industry that has been maturing over, you know, uh, 50, 60, 70 years. So today the field is turning more to producing products that are, say, more high value, but maybe also products that you could not otherwise get from traditional chemical synthesis. Good examples are complex plant natural products that we, of course, could extract from plants but we cannot source them in sufficient amounts that we may need them for. Is chemistry still relevant or is it at risk of going to the wayside because of it? No, I don't think it will completely replace chemistry. It's, it's broadening our toolbox for what we can do. There will be certain things where it will be very hard to compete with classic organic chemical synthesis, but there are certain areas where biology will outperform that. One area is, of course, in particularly in terms of selectivity, that we can make very complex molecules by biology that would be hard to synthesize chemically. Coming back from what I also mentioned before about the kind of the first rationale or the first idea was to say, ah, could we produce some of these compounds that we traditionally produce by chemistry and hereby replace the chemical industry uh, by fermentation? That's probably not going to happen, as I said, but, but we will see more and more new materials that are being produced. And where is the field of synthetic biology going? Where there's probably a lot of interest right now is to use synthetic biology as food ingredients. It can be that we, for example, still use plant-based burger substitutes, but we need specific ingredients to add to those plant ingredients in order to make it taste well or have the right vitamin composition and so on. It can also be that we go all the way in and begin to use microorganisms directly as food. There's a product sold for uh, vegetarians in UK called corn that has been on the market for many years. It's a filamentous fungus. So this idea of using fungi directly as food, but now we can maybe engineer them to have different tastes, these different texture and so on, and hereby really open up for a much wider application of foods that are produced by different means. So like the motto says, better living through chemistry, maybe better eating through biology. <laughs> yes, one um, could say that, absolutely, <laughs> Jackie, yeah. How does BII support the synthetic biology field? 
at BII, we are very, very keen in supporting researchers in either founding companies or making sure that their research can be translated into very early stage startup companies that many, maybe others push forward. We have various programs at BII to support very early stage startup companies, but also a, a venture creation program. And let's take a couple of examples of companies and ideas that we are supporting. One uh, is a synthetic biology applied to engineering yeast uh, for production of a group class of molecules that we normally extract from plants. And this company is specifically looking into monoterpenes that is found in hops, a key ingredient in beer. And they are making a business model of developing and producing these hops ingredients by yeast fermentation, purifying them. And now you can add them into non-alcoholic beer and start to make different IPA flavor. This is an example where, where you could begin to enrich the qualities of certain beers. In a longer perspective, this could maybe completely replace the use of hops. And you can say, why would you want to do that? But hops is a very resource demanding plant to grow. Actually, it requires a lot of water and so on. Not growing hops, but rather produce these tiny, small amounts of ingredients that actually gives the flavor through a precision fermentation would be much better for, from a sustainability perspective. In another case, this is about engineering yeast, like filamentous fungi that sometimes contaminates our food, but this yeast actually tastes good. And, and because it can form its filamentous form, it can give the right texture. So actually, this yeast can be used to produce, for example, chicken breast substitutes that is now based on a yeast fermentation. And then you could begin, as I said, making sure that that yeast is also enriched with the right vitamins. And so it also becomes more healthy. And so we can cross these boundaries where not only do we make foods in a more sustainable way, but we also make them healthier going forward. Hmm. My vegetarian relatives at Thanksgiving would really appreciate this mock meat option. Yeah. yeah. Okay, here's the big question. Why is synthetic biology controversial and what are some of the ethical concerns? The ethical concerns and, and, and some of the controversies have, of course, been the fact that it's relying on using genetically modified organisms. So initially, it was introduced first to produce enzymes and then the also recombinant proteins that we use as pharmaceuticals. And those applications where we were producing a protein that we were purifying and we were kind of burning the microorganisms so there was no release of that into nature. But, you know, then laws were established. Denmark was among the first also to make a law on GMO. So that kind of settled it. But now we're kind of moving the next step and beginning to use these genetically modified organisms as maybe for pest control out in nature. So we're releasing them to nature. Uh, we're beginning to use them directly as foods, as I mentioned. So we're crossing different boundaries. We need to make sure that we're not creating, you know, Frankenstein organisms that are being released. But we have, you know, on the other hand, acquired a lot of knowledge over the years. We can also today really design these microorganisms such that they cannot survive for a long time. The power of the technology is in a different place. But this is, of course, where there is some concern from certain people. And there's also, of course, the governmental bodies that are looking into how should we deal with this. It is a typical situation when we stand in front of us and we have technology that can really address big 
societal challenges, that that also, of course, requires us to evaluate some of the, the risks that are associated with it and concerns that there are. And this will always be a balance as I see it. But the potential upside of the application in the fields is too large. And particularly with the concerns we have in terms of climate change, this is technologies that we will have to begin to use more actively in the future. Jens, thank you for joining me. Our thanks to the Bioinnovation Institute for sponsoring this interview. However you feel about synthetic biology, it is here to stay. For researchers interested in becoming entrepreneurs in synthetic biology, please read up on the Bioinnovation Institute and Science Prize for Innovation found either at bii.dk or science.org. This podcast has been edited and condensed for length by Chris Connor, fellow podcaster of Life Science Marketing Radio, and me, Jackie Oberst. Thank you for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. Or if you're particularly happy with this week's show, they'll write us a review on your podcast app of choice. To find us on those apps, search for Science Magazine. You can listen to the show on our website too at science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.